Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's April the 15th, 2022. Regular viewers and listeners know that we've been doing a lot of shows recently on neoliberalism, on financialization, on its impact on culture, society, economics, on justice. So we did a show um, earlier this month with the Cambridge historian Gary Gerstle on his new book, The Rise and Fall of the Neoliberal Order. Gerstle argues, I think quite correctly, that everything has essentially been taken over by this neoliberal order over the last 50 years. It's defined who we are. It's defined our societies. I did a show last week with the economist Elizabeth Pop Berman, who suggests that one of the problems is we're all thinking like economists. Financialization or neoliberalism means thinking exclusively in in economic terms, in financial terms, in profit and gain terms. Her book, her new book, Thinking Like an Economist, How Efficiency Replaced Equality in U.S. Public Policy is another important read. It seems to have permeated everything. I had a young man on the show earlier this week, Jeff Rosenthal. He's the founder of Summit, one of the Silicon Valley conferences. He has a new book out, Make No Small Plans, Lessons on Thinking Big, Chasing Dreams and Building Community. But as I suggested in our conversation, Only rich people probably can afford to think big, chase dreams and build community. They are taught that uh, those series of ideas, we might even think of it as an ideology in the universities. And we've done shows on the universities, critical shows on the universities. Last year, for example, I had a An important writer, I think, Deverian Baldwin, uh, on the show about how universities are plundering our cities. Uh, He has a book out, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower. I think Baldwin touches on the impact of neoliberalism um, on university life, on, on, on the academic world in America. But today we are addressing that issue squarely with my guest, Charlie Eaton who was actually, interestingly enough, suggested to me by um, uh, Elizabeth Pop Baldwin um, Berman. He has uh, a new book out, University of Chicago book, uh, ironically enough. (laughs) Bankers in the Ivory Tower, the troubling rise of financiers in U.S. higher education. And he's joining us today. Um, Charlie, how centrally do you locate... Um, the rise and crisis of neoliberalism in the history of further education in America over the last 50 years? Uh, Very centrally. uh, You know, one of the, a key part of rising inequality has been the rise of new, extremely wealthy financiers, particularly around private equity funds and hedge funds. And one of the things that my book chronicles is how elite universities were surprisingly central in the rise of these new funds. It took financial deregulation um, and tax cuts for um, things like capital gains in the early 1980s to 
open up new opportunities for private equity and hedge funds. But many of these funds were founded around uh, our most elite business schools like the Harvard Business School. And uh, frequently, some of the earliest major investors in those funds were uh, university endowments. And so one of the stories I tell in the book is the story of Tom Steyer, uh, who founded Farallon uh, Capital and has become a hedge fund billionaire. And he learned in 1986 at the, uh, the Yale homecoming football game that one of his fellow Yaleys, uh, David Swenson, who had worked on Wall Street, had gone back to Yale to manage Yale's endowment and was starting to make internal hedge fund type in investments. And, uh, and uh, Steyer then went uh, and got a meeting with uh, David Swenson and uh, asked him, hey, will you invest in my hedge fund? And Swenson said, well, I don't know, you know, it's, you could have a bad year and you could uh, close down your fund and we wouldn't necessarily get the returns. And they kind of use their intimate tie that really matters a lot more in finance than people think. These uh, you know, financiers are not just cold and calculating. There's a lot of reciprocity among financiers. And so Steyer said to his fellow Yaley, I promise we won't shut down. In fact, I'll wait for us to take our 20% share of investment returns until later on in the process. And so Swenson gave him three hundred. Um, million dollars of his initial capital, a third of Farallon's initial capital. Charlie, uh, even in the normal moral stench of American neoliberalism or capitalism, this this has a, a particularly foul smell. Here we have somebody like Steyer, Tom Steyer, billionaire, who is extremely popular amongst liberals, left liberals in America. I know my wife's been to several of his fundraisers in, in San Francisco, the heart of left liberalism. And you're suggesting that he is also at the heart of this increasingly unjust um, university system, the privatization, the financialization of further education. How I don't want to make this a show into a show about Steyer. And I know your book isn't about Steyer, but how aware a guy, because he's a smart guy, how aware are people like Steyer of what they're actually doing here? You know, I, I don't, I, I, unfortunately, I've never been able to talk to Steyer myself. And so I don't know retrospectively how reflective he is about the advantages that he had and the, the role of Ivy League ties um, in uh, creating and perpetuating um, inequalities. Um, but it's it's not just Tom Steyer. Um, you know, there are, um, if you look in 2013, New York Times had a story showing that uh, many, many of the elite private schools had people on their board from these large investment funds that they were invested in. Uh, and it's a key way that people can get private information, um, which is what private equity funds and, and hedge funds trade on. They get private information from the elite networks around these schools that they use to make um, big and lucrative investments and to raise capital. Somebody like Steyer, if he was on the show, I'm sure he would never come on. But if he was, he would say, well, look, we live in a in an open financial system. Um, all I'm looking to do is, is, is make money. There's nothing wrong with that. And I give my money away to progressive causes. What would you how would you respond to somebody like Steyer if they argued that? 
Well, I think one of the things is that we, you know, we've essentially gutted the social state in the U.S., including our higher education system, because of the, because we've allowed finance to keep growing shares of after-tax profits. So if we were to go back to the capital gains tax rates and to the the upper income tax rates of the late 1970s, we would be recapturing hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue per year that could pay to finance a more equitable higher education system that is not reliant on student debt the way that our system has become dependent on student debt. The real injustice, I mean, there are many injustices in your book and in your arguments, but the thing that's so particularly distasteful is that Clearly, from your argument and, and, and others like this, there are at least two university systems in America. There's the, the high-end system, the Stanfords, the Harvards, the Yales, where Steyer goes, where his kids go, where they meet other kids like themselves, where some kids from the lower classes are brought up um, and, and paid for. And then the, the underclass of the university system, particularly the, the private education so-called for-profit colleges like um, the, the University of Phoenix. Um, I, I was looking at their website this morning. They talk about owning your future. That's one of their marketing cells. I mean, nothing could be further from the truth. They own our future or the government owns our future in terms of debt. So what we have is two university systems, one that is deeply punitive towards the poor and one that rewards the wealthy. Is that fair? That's right. And the two are actually connected. And that's part of what um, I think is new that I show with the book. So for-profit colleges explode in the 1990s after uh, an expansion in federal student loans, after the federal policymakers in Congress decided to give larger subsidies to Wall Street to make student loans at the beginning of the 1990s. And then private equity firms said, wait a minute, we can use these uh, student loans to enroll students at high upfront costs before they know about how uh, worthless our degrees are. And we can make a ton of money on doing that. And so private equity firms started investing heavily in for-profit colleges. But this shows how the top inequality at the top is connected to inequality at the bottom in that those private equity firms also are the same firms that were making huge returns on behalf of endowment investors. And endowments and certainly students at elite colleges, they didn't uh, say what we want to do is go make a higher return by profiting off for-profit colleges. But the way our this circuitry of finance connects people, uh, sometimes unknowingly, to exploitation at the bottom makes the accumulation of wealth and advantage at the top complicit in uh, these inequalities at the bottom. How complicit do you think um, the upper middle class, I, Richard Reeves, who's been on the show before, has an interesting book out, Dream Hoarders, how the, up, how the American upper middle class, the very mid, upper middle class that sends its kids to, you know, University of California and University of Chicago and all the rest of it, they are part of this rotten system. Uh, is there a, a direct element of moral or immoral complicity here, do you think, Charlie? 
You know, <laughs> what you say reminds me of a study by Raj Chetty, the Harvard economist, that found 38 of our top private universities enroll more students from the top 1% of the income spectrum than from the bottom six combined. And I think what you've described is the effort by folks in the upper middle class, let's say the upper 10%, which in a way is that the upper, is, are we really still talking about the middle? Um, well, that's just a euphemism to make them feel yeah, a little better about themselves. Sure. So, so that and to be fair, I'm part of that. I mean, I'm not excluding myself, and probably myself, you are too. Myself as well. And so we're competing for spots in those, um, you know, in those elite universities. The ten percent is com competing to have spots in those universities where the the one percent particularly enrolls at a very high rate. And um, and in some respects, we are. Um, we are seceding from society and that we're pooling our resources via tuition dollars and also philanthropy at these elite institutions that just don't enroll people from most of, of society. A thing that I think is difficult to parse is how much of this is driven by the wealthiest at the very top, um, the billionaires and the financiers who sit on the boards of elite universities um, versus people who are the, the merely rich, we, we might call them. Yeah, I, I know you teach at UC Merced, which is about as middle class, a uh, middle class university that exists in America. We did a show. Um, we did a, a show recently, or actually last year with a, a young historian at University of Chicago, Blake Smith, about what he calls the the woke meritocracy he talks about wokeness and meritocracy in the Ivy League at places like Chicago and Princeton and Harvard. Is there something again very distasteful about the obsession with racial and cultural justice at these elite universities, while the reality is something so distasteful that is ignored by uh, the woke crowd as well as, of course, conservatives? I don't want to just limit my criticism to the left. Yeah, well, I mean, at UC Merced, 90% of our students are non-white and about uh, about 55% of our students are low-income Pell recipients. So, uh, you know, our, our campus, you might call a working-class campus in a lot of respects, um, but folks are upwardly mobile and folks are attentive to the different dimensions of inequality, racial, um, gender, uh, and um, uh, immigrant backgrounds, um, we have a large share of, of students who are first-generation immigrants. And so I think, uh, you know, the attention to, to those, um, those dimensions of inequality, I think doesn't need to distract from the accumulation of massive wealth at the top. And in a lot of ways, massive wealth at the top uh, reinforces those inequalities um, and just being attentive to those inequalities isn't enough. Uh, you know, there's Sarah Ahmed has a great book about um, how we often use diversity language to make ourselves feel better about our institutions when we actually aren't doing the work of being truly inclusive and empowering educational. And I think your point is, is that by definition is not possible in these top universities because the system is so rotten. So uh, I'm assuming you believe we need architectural reform of the system. I know you're a big fan of Gabriel Zuckman and his work with Emmanuel Saez. Zuckman was on the show. He's a UC Berkeley economist. 
uh, talking about his book, which he wrote with size, The Triumph of Injustice. Can this problem only be fixed, Charlie, with a radical reform of the American tax system? That seems to be what Zuckman believes. Well, and that's where the book, my book ends up too. What I say is we can't fix the higher education finance system without fixing our broader finance system and vice versa. So by way of example, you know, I, I mentioned those huge tax cuts for, um, for finance and for the wealthy at the beginning of the 80s that defunded our higher education system. Restoring those taxes with proposals like the proposals that, that Zuckman and Saez have advanced, advanced to tax wealth would create revenue that we could use to finance our higher education system. It would also reduce the incentive for folks to uh, try to ac accumulate huge private equity and hedge fund returns that could be passed on to endowments. So I think reforming our finance system and making our higher education system more equitable and more inclusive so that we don't just have a set of financiers and elite institutions that are seceding and hoarding their resources for themselves. Yes, that hoarding that's so, so distasteful. I wonder, you mentioned UC Merced where you, you teach, which is a, a very inclusive, an unusually inclusive campus, even within the UC system, which is relatively inclusive. The Californian university system is three-tiered. It has the UCs, UCLA, UC Merced, UC Berkeley, then the California state university system, and finally the community college system. Are those three tiers, is that a problem or a fix or both, Charlie? It, it, does California offer a signpost to the future? Obviously, we don't want for-profit colleges. They're a catastrophe. Yeah. I think the tiering of our system becomes a problem in that we end up appropriating much more resources to our UC system, uh, which enrolls fewer students than our CSU system and our community colleges. And it's, it's difficult to pull apart how much of that is about the fact that the UC system is also tasked with doing more research than our CSU system, for example. But we're certainly spending more on the education per student of students at UC who tend to come from more advantaged backgrounds than we're spending uh, on a per student basis at the CSU or community college systems. And so figuring out how do we balance resources between those, uh, those systems so that we're spending money on the students who need more resources to succeed um, rather than the other way around. And I, while I think we need to really focus on that inequality because public institutions enroll most students, um, they enroll around 62% of all bachelor degree seekers. Um, you can't totally ignore the private institutions at the top with huge endowments because they are sucking up so much resources that could be spread more equitably through our public system. Yeah, and it's the advertising of these for-profit universities like Phoenix, which are so corrosive. And of course, they prey on people who have no idea of how to get on in the world. What about the argument that some people make that America should look at the apprentice systems in Germany, further education systems where people go to work and that this whole university thing is a bit of a scam, that people 
most people, particularly people in the working class, would be simply better off going and finding apprenticeships, uh, apprenticeships through um, further education establishments. What's your take on that? Yeah, no, it's certainly a viable alternative for us to say employers should pay to provide the training beyond high school for uh, the workers that they need rather than um, uh, asking effectively asking workers to pay for their their training after high school for themselves. I think making a transition politically and institutionally to that type of system that they have in Germany would be very difficult in the US. And so it seems like a more viable political and uh, an institutional strategy for us to say, we're no longer gonna effectively require workers and people who are out of jobs to pay for their their learning beyond high school. Um, we're gonna pay for it as a society through our community colleges and through our public universities. Um, uh, and we're gonna tax uh, the employers and the financiers who end up benefiting from having a more educated and productive workforce. And Charlie, as we speak, the White House has announced that it's extending the student loan pause again, um, and there are rumors, probably fueled from the Biden White House, that canceling the entire student loan debt is still uh, on the table, whatever that means. I don't know why Biden can't make the decision. How important is this? Do we need I think to wipe, wipe yeah. the slate clean and begin again? That's exactly right. It's a way to hit the reset button and to write a wrong that has been going on for more than 40 years. We have borrowers with debt in the 1990s that where their debt is greater than what they originally borrowed because they were told they did everything right. They took out the loan they were told to take out. They enrolled in the payment plan, uh, but they couldn't afford the payments and their balances increased over time. Um, our student loan system's been uh, broken and it's a way to provide much needed relief for 45 million student loan borrowers, mostly from low wealth backgrounds, and to hit the reset for how we finance our higher education system. Well, to borrow some language from Bob Dylan, everything is broken, the healthcare system, the prison system, above all else, the Further education system, this is underlined by Charlie Eaton's new book, important new book by the University of Chicago Press, uh, Bankers in the Ivory Tower, the Troubling Rise of Financiers in the U.S. Higher Education System. I have to admit it doesn't surprise me, uh, but it's an important new book. Uh, Charlie, what else should people be reading uh, in these troubling times? My colleague, uh, Laura Hamilton, has a fantastic book, Broke, about inequalities, especially racial inequalities within California's public university system. Oh You're going to cheer me up on a Friday afternoon, Charlie. Uh, so I, I recommend that one. And uh, finally, Charlie Eaton, the author of Bankers in the Ivory Tower. I think I can guess what you're going to say. Who, who runs the world in uh, mid-April 2022, Charlie? Well, I'm reminded, at least in the higher education world, of a quote from Kerr, who was a, a f essential president of the UC system in the 1960s, which is that the university is a collection of faculty entrepreneurs who are united only by a shared grievance over parking. Um, so in our university system, uh, while financiers have tremendous power and wealth, 
really no one is in charge and that's part of what's made reform so hard.